Hey, beautiful people. Welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW. 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the show. And as always, this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. And I want to welcome regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps from Brattleboro. And we have to laugh, Emily, because we're going to talk about education funding. And I think it hints at how hard you've been working and how much you've been embroiled in this issue, because last week I announced to everyone that you would be stepping away for the legislative session. And then, of course, I texted you and I'm like, oh, we really need to talk about ed funding. Do you know of anyone who could talk about it? And that's you. So you are back here. Thank I am. You. I am. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I, I do need to step away for a little bit and I already miss it. But as I said to Olga a few times, as I've said to you, Olga, I'm getting tired of my own voice um, Mm. because I am having to talk about these issues so often and it's so important for the public to understand it. But I want the happy hour to be like a place of discovery and curiosity. And Mm. I've been feeling a little too overexposed to do that lately. And so I wanted to make sure that I was giving my best to the happy hour when I was on it. And so taking a little break, but happy to be back when... I am the likely guest on topic and definitely one of the reasons I um, have been really extraordinarily focused on legislative work and not able to look up very much is because of education finance this year. Yes. Thank you, Emily. One reason I'm glad we're talking about this today is not only because for many towns, they're dealing with the pressures of, or school districts, they're dealing with the pressures of town meeting. And even if they do decide to take advantage of H850 and push their school budget votes back, it's still a very compressed timeline. And I think a lot of folks that I've talked to, they're feeling a little frustrated because they don't understand why we're here now. It feels like a little bit like Groundhog Day. Oh, look, Ed funding again is rearing its head, it's out of control. We don't understand how it's working. And when people don't understand, they kind of lose faith in the system. Mm -hmm. So thank you for being here today to talk about it. And I guess that's where I would start is, you know, we've done, well, you and I have really been focusing on this on the happy hour since 2019 with the Mm -hmm. people waiting study. A lot of work has been done over the past few years around revamping education funding. And yet, Schools are now looking at these really huge increases in taxes or potential increases. Why are we here now? Like what what's triggered this latest moment? And I really encourage listeners to go back. We did an episode on like December 4th or something that I think covers a lot of the ground that I'm going to cover today, though I certainly have updated information on it all. So core to Vermont's education finance system is a fairly unusual thing, which is that Local districts craft their budgets, decide what they think is appropriate to spend with really very little collaboration or supervision from the Agency of Education. The Agency of Education sort of holds them accountable for federal rules to some extent, but mostly even districts need to hold themselves accountable for federal rules. And that budget is then decided by voters. 
but different from many other states, that budget that's decided by voters is then added up, put into a great big pot with all the other budgets decided by voters. And then we raise that money in a statewide fund. Mm -hmm. So would it be fair to say we have a little bit of a dual system where in some states, education is completely at the local level or it's completely at the state level, but we have a little bit of a dual system? Yes, exactly. Okay. So we have this dual system. And right now, it seems like the dual system means that every part of the system is blaming the other part of the system and saying they have no control, as opposed to sort of owning their part of the system. Heard and that, that before, is, yep. that's what we do when we're scared and overwhelmed. And I think everyone is scared and overwhelmed by education finance this year. So I think the first thing to understand is that schools, for very, very good reasons, feel like they need to spend more this year in order to meet educational outcomes. And as we sort of dug more and more into the information, and I'm gonna get um, even more in testimony today, it's really become clear that it is absolutely a confluence of multiple things. It is not just like one thing and I'm throwing another seven things at the dartboard so that people don't put too much emphasis on that one thing. It really is like a whole suite of different things that all seem to be contributing almost equally to the increase in the need to spend on education this year. So those things are increases in healthcare costs, which are actually for the last many years have been part of a statewide bargaining for health insurance for teachers. We'll come back to that. Increased spending on special education which is a combination of federal regs, state regs, and then a few changes in education finance that we'll come back to. But at the end of the day, it's like more kids are being, I don't think the word is diagnosed, but more kids are sort of being identified as needing special education services. So increased spending mm -hmm. there. And then increased spending in that category for sort of extreme special ed, which is sometimes, you know, offsite special education services that can be very mm -hmm. expensive. It's called extraordinary, but it seems like a weird word to use technically. Increased need for capital construction costs right. or for maintenance costs. Some of this is things like PCB or perhaps people have read about PFOAs in water, in school water systems. But we had a lot of schools in the state of Vermont that were built like around the same year. Mm. and they're all showing their age around the same time. Similarly to how like sort of our generation of our workforce is sort of like all turning over at the same time. It's just like, that's what happens when things all happen at the same time. They come due all at the same time too. Yes. <laughs> um, and we have not invested specifically in school construction on a statewide level in a long time. So that's another one. So that's like roofs that are leaking, sewage in classrooms, undrinkable water, PFOAs, PCBs, all kinds of things like that. Some of that is, again, we are identifying problems that have been there for a long time, and some of that is new problems. So the PCBs, identifying problems that were there for a new time, probably picked the wrong year to identify that problem. Other things like, you know, the leaking roof and the sewage, longstanding problems. And as we all know, those things get more and more expensive the longer you put them on. Yeah. Teacher bargaining. So post-pandemic, teachers, you know, frontline workers, much appreciation and much stress. This latest round of collective bargaining has resulted, and that happened at the local levels, has resulted in higher pay for teachers and school staff pretty much across the board. Mm -hmm. We still don't have teachers and staff that are actually paid very much compared to national averages or compared to our neighboring states. 
But what we do have is that sort of, you know, teachers can, because there is, we lost, I think the second most teachers per capita in our schools post pandemic of any state. And again, that's like that generational shift that we've talked about so much, Mm -hmm. right? Combined with the sort of, you know, pandemic era retirements, all of that came together in Vermont in a very specific way, which means that we had a bit of a teacher shortage, which leads to, you know, increased bargaining power. And it meant that teachers could move from a district that pays more to a district that pays more from a district that pays less. Most of what I've said, actually, you know, I'll keep on going. Increased cost of fuel. Oh, right. That impacts transportation and buildings, right? Mm-hmm. Increased need for mental health supports. Yeah. That's somewhat special, separate from special ed. You know, we have a mental health crisis and a learning loss crisis in the aftermath of the pandemic. That's true nationally. Mm-hmm. It's particularly true in Vermont as kids were incredibly isolated during the pandemic. And to pair that with, we had federal money to support that. It's called ESSER, and that's all gone now. Okay. But the needs are still there. So we have sort of all of those things, a lot of which are true in lots of systems, right? The mm. increased cost of construction and delayed maintenance, the fuel costs, the collective bargaining, healthcare costs, all those are happening in a lot of other sectors too. Yeah. Um, there's standard inflation, like I think pens cost more, food costs more, all those things. Yeah, And that was all paired with this shift in education finance law mm-hmm. under 127 and the new weights. The transition mechanism that we put in place years ago when we enacted 127 was just implemented this year. Mm-hmm. And that created space for districts to spend more and keep a consistently low tax rate because we were trying to protect districts from the full transition of the people weights right all at once yeah because it could be we don't want it to be too much of a shock for systems that for schools that were experiencing a real shift in their tax rates but because of all of those other increases in spending that were just like very natural parts of this year's budget cycle it meant that every district was spending significantly more which meant that every district was hitting that cap And once every district hits that cap, there's no way to raise money for the ed fund anymore. Ah, okay. Because the education fund is funded every single year by property taxes. That's the variable in the education fund. And so uh, just to make sure I'm, I'm hearing you correctly, because of everybody hitting their cap, was that extra spending consuming the property, what would have been the property tax? So there was none left over for the ed fund? No, essentially what it does is sort of every time a district hits a certain tax rate, hits that 5% tax rate because of their local decisions, because it's a statewide fund that also drives up the tax rates of other districts. Okay. And so other districts then hit that 5% cap. Okay. In their proper in their homestead property taxes. And basically we created a wave where, you know, every time another district hits it, that brings another five districts up. And so every single district was hitting that five percent cap, which meant that both they had an incentive to spend more and keep their homestead rate the same, which is a very reasonable choice to make if you can. 
but then leaves us so that the non-homestead property tax rate needs to carry all the rest of the education fund. Ah, okay. And districts, and there are districts that are not spending that much still, whose homestead property tax rate was jumping up to that 5%. So, oh, I'm sorry. I also skipped the fact that property values are going up. Mm, Yes. All of those things are all happening at once. And they're all happening at the same time that non-property tax revenue, which goes into the education fund, like sales tax, meals and rooms tax, those were going down after a pandemic era peak. Mm, mm Mm-hmm which again, places more burden on the property taxes. Right. And so all of those things all at once have made our property tax very significant because it's such a complex confluence of factors. It's really easy for local districts to feel like it's not their spending decisions that are making the rates go up. Mm -hmm. And because of the ESSER money, And because of the drop in the non-property tax revenue, it's very easy for districts to say, our budget is only going up by 2%. So why is our tax rate going up by X percent? Right. Because their budgets last year included ESSER, might've included some reserves because we're sort of coming out of this time of plenty. And so again, hit this perfect storm and we're trying to find our way through it. Hmm. Okay. What's coming to mind as my little neurons fire off and you know how I, my brain is always a web and it's like, what's vibrating (laughs) and where can the little spiders (laughs) go next? I think I have a new appreciation for the federal funds that were coming into Vermont during COVID. And now it feels a little bit like, it's not an exact correlation, but a little bit like a benefits cliff. Mm-hmm. We're experiencing that as a state now that the federal money has gone away. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense to me. It's a way of thinking about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Lucky us. Lucky us. Mm-hmm. What do you think is important for people to really grasp right now? I think in the second half, we're going to talk a little bit like, where can we go from here? Mm-hmm. But, you know... What are kind of the short-term next steps that school districts can take or the state is taking? You mentioned today you're taking some testimony. Yeah, so there's no easy solution to this and it's not anyone's fault. And I know that's easy to say if like people want to blame the legislature for me to be like, it's not the legislature's fault. But many of those factors I described are both outside of the hands of the legislature and outside of the hands of school districts. Some of them are outside of the hands of school districts. Some of them are outside the hands of the legislature. We could sort of chart that. But at the end of the day, it's, and, you know, property taxpayers and voters also have a say in this, but they have a limited say, right? Mm Because as we've talked about hundreds of times, once something comes to the floor of town meeting or comes to the ballot for a vote, you only have two choices. Mm Mm-hmm. You vote it up or you vote it down. Yeah. The time for nuance and problem solving is long gone. Mm -hmm. And so that's another hard part of this because taxpayers have sort of two, you know, they have two options. Neither of them are very attractive. So that's one piece of it. As we've been taking testimony, what we did for this year right off the bat was we passed a bill called H850 that's now been signed into law 
that got rid of that 5% cap that I described that moved everything that was sort of everyone's getting caught up on. And we had this wave where every single district was pulled into it. We removed that 5% cap and replaced it with a tax rate discount for mm -hmm. certain districts. And in doing that, we kept that wave from happening. Okay. So it meant that sort of each district's relationship to its tax rate was much more linear than under this funny old transition mechanism and much more like the way it's acted in all the other past years before this. Gotcha. And so we did that quite quickly. And we did that partly because we were hoping that it might cause some districts to change their budgets and bring them down a little bit. But more importantly, we did it because we need to have all of the opportunities available to us in the education fund to deal with this problem. We need to be able to vary the homestead rate and the non-homestead rate and put additional revenue into the education fund. And with that tax rate cap, essentially anything else we did would just get like sucked into that tax rate cap. Huh. Okay. Um, and we wouldn't be able to use any of our other tools to lower rates. Mm -hmm. So that is like that restoring that linearity which is the worst talking point ever. And, <laughs> oh, sorry. I have a little dog here. Hello, little dog. You know, I was talking to a reporter from Seven Days the other day in the cafeteria, and he's like, I got to tell you, my editor, and he's like a longtime reporter, and he's like, I got to tell you, my editor told me I can't use the phrase tax capacity, and I don't think linearity is on the table either. And I really just don't know how to describe either of these things in a way that doesn't use either of those phrases because those are the phrases you keep on using with me. I'm like, they're the only appropriate ways to describe it. I've been looking for other words, but that's all I got for you. Sorry. <laughs> like, it's oh, math. It is math uh, and it's confusing mm -hmm. math. <laughs> it's really confusing math. So that's the base of the conversation. I can talk more about sort of what next steps look like for this year. And then the years out from here, I think are more interesting. Okay. Well, we've got just over five minutes in this half of the show. I'm happy to follow you on whatever you think listeners should know right now. So I think for this year, we don't have very many options. Like okay. districts, you know, are voting on their school budgets next year. Some of them, are, I mean, next week. Some of them are going to vote their budgets up. Some of them are going to delay their votes. We'll know more. But at the end of the day, we don't think that district decisions are going to bring us much below what was in the December 1st letter that you and I talked about in early December. Okay. And that was the potential 18% increase. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so we have an opportunity to put non-property tax revenue into the education fund, right? We can do that anytime. Right now we have a few sources in it, but I'll tell you, there are actually very few sources of revenue that are more progressive than property taxes. Mm. Property taxes are not the most progressive form of revenue, but expanding the sales tax or adding a tax on services is definitely much more regressive than property taxes, which are like, you know, a fairly good stand in for wealth, not mm -hmm. perfect, but fairly good. And if you include our income adjustment, they're quite good. And so, if we need to pay for it, it's not like there's magic money that's going to fall from the sky. Any source of revenue is a tax. And some taxes are better than others for these things. Right. So that's an important question in front of us. And I think it's really hard because there's a political desire 
to solve the problem for everyone to say, mm. oh my God, these tax property taxes are totally out of control. They feel out of control to me. They feel like something I'm not sure I'll be able to pay. Mm -hmm. But there aren't very many places we can shift that revenue that will actually be better for the majority of Vermonters. Right. I mean, because... that's the difference between a progressive and a regressive tax, right? Like, do we really want to shift the burden so we could play sort of, you know, some sort of political magic to say like, yes, we're solving the problem and lowering property tax rates. But like at the end of the day, it'll probably have a higher burden on middle income and low income Vermonters. So that's hard. And it's also hard because we resent our property taxes because we pay them once a year or four times a year in like a great big chunk. Mm -hmm. But we might be spending more on taxes in lots of other ways that we don't ever add up. And so we don't have the same vibe about it. Right. So a that's sales tax of, here, a fuel tax there, meal tax. Mm -hmm. We just, yeah, we're not putting them all together. Yeah. That's the crux of how we're going to try to make decisions for this year. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. Now I read in a couple news stories that uh, someone was suggesting pulling together another tax commission to look at ed funding and, and taxing in general. What's your thoughts on that? I think that we have studied this issue really extensively. And so I think if we're going to pull together another commit, and we have not acted on a lot of the recommendations of the last commission, mm. I think we know a lot of what we need to know to make changes. And it's really a question of, do we have the political will? So mm -hmm. in the second half, I'd love to talk about like the difference between sort of lowering costs and shifting how our decision-making and or our taxes are structured for education. Okay. Yep, we can definitely do that. So the governor, just as like a preview, sneak peek of the second half for people, the governor in the last few missives who sent out on this topic has said, I'm going to go along with this stuff the legislature's doing, but in the end, if they had just listened to me, none of this would have happened. Right. And I'll tell you, first of all, no one from the governor's office has come to the table with a proposal of any kind okay. on this. I was going to ask you, I was a little curious what he had no, recommended that we're quote unquote ignoring. And like to their, in their defense, like there is no like obvious solution to this. It's a really hard, complex problem that's mm -hmm. going to take like a lot of people's minds. The other piece is that we actually have acted on a number of the governor's suggestions to reduce education spending, two of them being moving to statewide bargaining of healthcare costs right. and reforming our special education finance system to essentially a block grant format. Both of those things we think are actually resulting in increased costs this year, not reduced costs this year, but we're not sure because you can't tell like what would have happened if we had not done that. Right. The path not taken. Mm -hmm. Okay. Quickly, before we head to break, now, as I understand it, we have yet to hire a head of the education department. Is that lack of top leadership adding to this at all? Or I think having a leader when we're dealing with really complex problems is really important. Both someone to speak, speak to the complexity, speak to solutions for districts to feel like someone is setting vision. I think that's really, really important. It's also the lack of secretary of the agency of education means that they're incredibly understaffed. Mm. 
So the deputy secretary who's serving as the interim secretary doesn't have a deputy secretary, right? Right. Now. Good point. And so that means that it's not that they're understaffed to get stuff done. They're also understaffed to be sort of like supervised and inspired and organized and set up workflows and make sure everyone's on the same page. And so there's some really good people working there that I've been really excited to collaborate with in the last month as we sort of reckon with these issues. But yeah, having permanent secretaries and commissioners is a really important part of having government function, mm -hmm. having or any organization function. Right, right. Well, thank you, Emily. So folks, stay tuned. Emily and I are going to take a break, hear from some of our underwriters on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host and producer of the show, Olga Peters. And I want to thank Brattleboro Community Television for all its work in taking the video version of our show and sharing it with media centers across the state. And today we are talking with we being Emily and I are talking to each other about <laughs> education funding in the state of Vermont and, and just all the, the factors that have caused this jump in education taxes that I think have left a lot of people clutching their pearls about where do we go next. But before we dive into where we go next on education funding, so Emily, mm -hmm. What do we remind listeners of right now? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour, those of the host and the guests respectively, and not the station, nor platform, nor family and friends or employers. Olga, when I'm taking my break from the happy hour, what are you going to do about this? Are you just going to like play a previous clip of me saying it and splice it in? Are you going to have your guests say it? Will you say it? You won't remember. You never remember. That's why I started saying it. <laughs> what will happen? Well, last week, I tried to get John Walters to say it because he's been on the show so often, he should know it by now. But I think he was missing you. And he felt like it was sacrilegious to to say the your you know, your part. So he said I should take a clip and edit it in. But that could only really be for the podcast. You know, it'd be hard for the radio listeners to always get that or the editing in. So I might just end up saying it. I have to put a little sticky up there, but I want the guests to say that. I think that's much more fun to hear the guests mm -hmm. say it. Maybe if you sent them the words in advance or something. Yes. That's what, here's, here's your homework. You have to, you have mm -hmm. to say this. Oh, or you could write it like on construction paper and <laughs> hold it up for them to read. That would be the cutest. I like that one. That one's good. Mm -hmm. And I can change it each week, throw something in there just for fun. Okay, I think maybe we'll do that. I like that. Hey, Emily, before we talk about taxes, I just want to take a quick break. We have been so busy on the happy hour lately that we haven't really done anything like toasting or taking a pause for things we're grateful for, which is we want this to be fun and we want this to be 
more than just policy. And so I just want to take a quick break, hold up my my coffee mug and toast everyone, especially with town meeting coming up, all the people who are involved in keeping Vermont's democracy going forward, the legislature, the administration, our volunteer poll workers, our town clerks, our school board members, our Ladies Aid Society who shows up and brings pies to town meeting for people to have at break. There are so many people who are keeping our democracy going. And I just want to say thank you to them as we head into town meeting. So cheers to all of you. So Emily, where do we take our education funding from here? So the first question is maybe this is the right amount of money to spend on education, but maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. And no one knows the answer to that question, Olga. We know that we spend more per pupil than anywhere else in the country. Yes. We know that for a long time, our educational outcomes were commensurate with that, and they're not anymore. But Mm. pandemic, poverty. We know that some of the money we're spending, we're spending inefficiently. Okay. And so that is things like school construction money or basically school buildings, right? Mm. We have, we still have more school districts and more school buildings than really like anywhere. And Mm. lots of questions about if we, you know, we have incredibly low staff to student ratios. Mm -hmm. And some of that is really good for educational outcomes. And some of that is just an accident of geography. And so mm-hmm. are there things that we should do about that? Or have we made a decision that it's actually best for children to be in teeny tiny schools in rural areas? Mm-hmm. No one has ever actually made that decision. We have just defaulted to that decision. And there's a lot of political, like local political will tied to that decision. I think Wyndham Elementary is like a great example of that conversation that I'm not going to get into right now. But people are attached to their local yes. elementary schools very much yes. so. And some of that is tradition. Some of that's good reason. Some of that, yeah, there's whole reasons behind that. We also have local, small, very small high schools, Mm. which I think people are less attached to and recognize that the educational outcomes related to a very small high school are quite different than to a small elementary school. Right. However, a lot of the places those small high schools are, are in the areas that might, if they close down their high school, they would not go to another public high school, they would go to an independent school. And so closing down some of those schools might result in the further privatization of our education system. Mm -hmm. And is that like, sorry, is that because if that high school were to close down, an independent school is closer time-wise than say driving to the next Union High yeah, School. Yeah, so like on the ballot right now in Cabot is closing down their public school, their public mm-hmm. high school. And so going to St. J Academy would, they could also go to Twinfield High School, mm-hmm. but it's a question of like, are they joining that? How does that all work? Right? Right. So that's okay. one thing. So there's the piece about the number of schools and districts that's about teacher-student ratios, staff-student ratios, and educational outcomes that needs like, we're really not making conscious decisions about that. We are defaulting to what we've done. Mm. There's also school construction, 
which is, are we really investing in every one of these falling apart buildings? Or should we make decisions about some of these buildings being consolidated so we can have newer and fewer and better schools? Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of sort of how we're spending money that we could likely reduce costs significantly and be more similar to our neighbors. But those are like very hard political conversations to have, right? Mm -hmm. The second place that we could likely reduce costs and increase educational outcomes is things like special education, where we pass something called Act 173 that moved us to a special education block grant instead of reimbursement of special education costs. Mm -hmm. And the idea of that was with a block grant, more early intervention and prevention was being funded. Mm. And so districts could work much more proactively and reduce costs on special education in the long run. That is only possible with significant technical assistance in the schools for them to really rethink how they do all of this work. And the agency of education has not been available for that. And schools are like, just sort of like most of us these days are like lost in the muck and mire of the day to day and not able to do the kind of systemic thinking that's going to be needed for that kind of reform. So those are two places where likely we could significantly reduce costs, but there's either a huge political challenge to it or um, a real need for the agency of education to step up to the table to do the kind of on the ground support for districts that they have not done for at least a decade. And is that because of understaffing or are there other reasons for that? I think there's political decisions related to that. I think there is understaffing related to that. I think there's sort of a differences of understanding about what the role of state government is and can be. But I know that this is something that districts sort of across the board have asked for. Okay. So that's sort of like two places. The third place that we talk about education spending being high for that's within our control to some degree and outside of our control to a lot of degree is how much schools are sort of the social service of last resort for communities mm-hmm. and kids. Yeah. And so people talk about how we've been sort of like offloading general fund expenses, human service expenses onto the education fund. But it's not like the general fund is like hanging out with lots of extra money that they're slushing around <laughs> in. Like it's actually probably more scarce resource than the education fund. And a lot of that is because, say, designated mental health agencies don't get enough money from the state and so can't pay their staff enough and so are understaffed. And so schools can't get the support they need from the designated mental health agencies. They hire their own clinicians. Those clinicians are then paid more than the designated mental health agency is. And so people are leaving the designated mental health agency to go work at the school for more money, which drives up education costs and furthers the scarcity and problems of the designated mental health agency. Hmm. All of the decisions that everyone's making in that are perfectly reasonable, rational decisions. Everyone's trying to get their real reasonable needs met. No one is being selfish Mm -hmm. or irrational, but it results in significant higher costs at schools. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we're making these decisions to basically locate all of these human services at the school building. And maybe that's actually the best decision to make, but we are not making it consciously. Right. Why should families have to go to six different places to get their needs met? If the kids are already at the school, why not get their needs met at the school, right? Especially if it's an environment that they're comfortable with, with people they're comfortable with and- mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
But if we're doing that, we should be doing it in a structured evidence-based way, consciously making the decision to do so rather than defaulting to it. And so we have a model called community schools that we've piloted at a bunch of schools around the state. That's a federal model that Bernie has actually been really invested in. And so if we're going to do that, let's do it well. And so will that result in a decrease in in a need for revenue overall? Will that result in a decrease of spending if we move to community schools instead of defaulting to community schools? Maybe, maybe not. But importantly, we will get better results for spending the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. Because what I hear people saying is not that they, I definitely like people don't want to be spending this much money. People are scared about their property tax rates. But what I hear more often from people is we're spending all this money and we're not getting the outcomes that our kids deserve. Right. So there's that piece. Those are sort of places that if we were doing a better job, we could either be saving money or getting more for our money. Mm -hmm. And those are big, big buckets that are going to take a lot of work and a lot of collaboration and the agency of education to show up at the table in a meaningful, fully staffed, capable, comprehensive way. And for everyone to get their heads above water enough to think about them. Mm. There are those, right? And so that's a lot of the work we're going to be doing. The second half is like, what do we do about the education finance system that's dependent on like local control and local decision-making, but is so confusing that no one actually knows what decisions they're making. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that is that elephant in the room is this dual system where we want local control. And yet our economies of scale are probably at the state level. Mm -hmm. And so then we come to questions about you know, we have districts that are not actually spending probably enough to fully to educate their children well because of local decision making. And we have districts that are, you know, spending quite significantly to meet their students needs. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we're all paying for that. So how is that fair to any of those, you know, to any family in the state or to any kid in the state or to any taxpayer in the state? We are going to we're working on questions of like, what does adequacy look like? Mm-hmm. Like instead of having the amount that a school is spending be based on the sort of vibe about taxes that hang it, hangs out in that community. Instead, maybe it should be based on like, what does it actually cost to educate a student well? No. Which might actually be less money than districts are spending, but it might be more. We don't know the answer to that question yet either. For my own understanding, you talk about what it would cost to educate a student. Don't we already have that? Doesn't the state already say we assume it will cost X amount to educate a student and therefore, and they give towns an amount. Isn't that already happening? No. Oh, okay. So what we did do with the weights is we said, we know how much more it costs to educate certain students, mm-hmm. more than some hypothetical base amount. But we never set that base amount. We just set the magnifier. Hmm. And it's not dollars that go to a district. It's actually just a change in their tax rates. Oh, okay. So that they can spend more on those students who require more for the same tax rate. But they don't necessarily have to. They could just keep their tax rates really low. Or they could pave a parking lot. Districts are not making those decisions. But within the system, they could. Right. But at the end of the day, that base amount is totally variable. There's a mathematical base that's not set based on what students need, but based on sort of how the education fund defaults after you do all the math. And so local decisions about sort of what that base per pupil amount are, again, is really based on sort of the culture of that community and their relationship to their taxes. 
You know, I think what I'm sitting with right now, and I'm feeling a little bit silly that I wasn't sitting with this sooner, but it just amazes me how often in this conversation and also how often it was said in the conversations about restructuring the, the pupil weights that the a phrase along the lines of, well, it's just based on how we think it should work or how the math defaulted rather than structural data, like base mm-hmm. core data. How did we get this far without actually sitting down and really looking at the structures and the numbers? Like I kind of assumed that was happening and that's why I feel a little silly that I didn't realize it wasn't. Oh, I, I think that. a lot You're like, oh, you little poor lost puppy. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just like the answer is sort of sad. I think a lot of it is like, we can only do so many things at one time. Mm. A lot of it is what I said is we sort of like we are, the education system is sort of often underwater and trying to find a way through. So we put band-aids on it. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that I think is the most important piece is not the most important piece, but I think one of the biggest factors in not doing it is the political will calculus, you know, like this newer and fewer on school building. I mean, if you look at the like political blowback on Act 46, right, that then resulted in like so many carve outs that there, you know, consolidation did not happen in a meaningful way, mm-hmm. you know, as just one example, Stowe divorced their consolidated district and are now very upset about how the weights impact them and about how their property tax rates are, which wouldn't have happened if they had stayed within their district, the existing mm. district that they divorced. So there's sort of that piece of it, the political will to do hard things that might be best for everyone, but lots of people are uncomfortable with it and is different than the way we've done stuff before, right? Like Act 60 was a huge deal. Like a lot of people think Act 60 is how we wound up with Take Back Vermont right? Mm. Which caused a flip in the entire legislature, right? Like a change in party. I think that, I think that's why we are not. And, you know, at the, I think education finance, one of the things that's really hard about it is that everyone thinks they know what's best because we've all been to school. We all know someone who goes to school. We all have a teacher that's our best friend, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so the legislature on the best of days is a body that's guided by story and instinct. And this topic is so particularly rife with that. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, we do that with all kinds of things. Hmm. So looking at, okay, I'm going to back up a little bit. What do you feel since there's been a lot of focus on ed funding right now, especially with town meeting and the votes coming up, what do you feel has not been touched on? Or do you feel it's the whole topic has been wrung dry at this point? I think it's been wrung pretty dry, (laughs) but the two things that I think are huge is that like complexity is not necessarily bad. It just means you need to have the patience to understand it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it is in a lot of people's best interest to keep people from understanding the system. Hmm. Okay. The other thing 
is that like, there is no magic here. There is no easy solution. And it will take everyone collaborating to actually find a path through this. Mm -hmm. No magic money. There's no magic formula. There's no magic way to care for and educate all of these kids, right? It's just like, it's not, there's no perfect path or we would have actually found it and enacted it right now. Mm -hmm. Especially given all the work we've done around ed funding. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Olga. You're welcome. Well, before you go quickly, I'm sure this is not the only thing your committee is working on. Any other tax bills you've been, or have you been completely consumed by education? We do work on this every Tuesday afternoon and often in a second slot as well, but we've been working on streamlining how tax sales happen around the state because there are different procedures in each town. We're reforming our telecom taxation because some of the laws have been on the books since the 40s and are just about copper. We are looking deeply at how to raise sufficient revenue to meet all of our needs in the state, including, you know, housing and flood relief and access to justice. We're doing a lot of fun stuff and folks should tune in or go sign up for my newsletter on my website, emilycornheiser.org. Okay. You can also always go to the Ways and Means Committee website by just Googling Vermont Legislature and then putting Ways and Means into a little search box. And there you can find access to our little YouTube station and you can watch us doing our work in real time. And you can also watch it faster than real time. Yes. You know, speed up the video. <laughs> Done that. Well, quickly, you, right before we're about to sign off, you did mention that when it comes to ed funding, it's going to take a lot of people collaborating at the table. Are there ways that members of the public can, information you need or ways that they can help you gather information like is there something people can do to to help this i think if people could get clear on what their values are and what their priorities are rather than reactive and scared i think that's really helpful i think having meaningful conversations at the school district level about what is sufficient and what is needed um, with the reality that like things are not free And I say that as someone who has pretty much like woven my entire legislative career out of ideas around sufficiency and adequate progressive taxation. But like this conversation has like really in a lot of cases lost track with the reality of people's lives. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. Emily Kornheiser, representative from Brattleboro. And it was such a pleasure to see you today. Thank you for being here. The Mount Pelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. We'll be back next week. We'll be talking with Meg Mott about civics and town meeting. And oh, I can't role. believe I have to miss that. I love I know. Meg Mott and civics and town meeting. Oh. Well, you, you know you can come back anytime. I know. Thank you. <laughs> so stay tuned for that, folks, for next week. And as always, you can subscribe to the Montpelier Happy Hour podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, Emily, have a good week. Hey, everybody, have a good week. Take care. Bye. Bye.